Today I'm going to be speaking about judgmentalism, perhaps differently than most of us think of it. In fact, the U.S. News and World Report article sometime back uh, quoted uh, a, a professor at a university named Robert Simon who said that in the last 20 years he had never met a student who denied the reality of the Holocaust. Though he had heard of others who had denied it, he never met a student who denied its reality. But he said this, while they could acknowledge the fact that it happened, he was finding an increasing number of students who couldn't bring themselves to say that killing millions of people was wrong. And while those students would say they deplored it, that disapproval was expressed as a distaste or a, uh, a lack of personal preference, not moral judgment. In other words, they would say things like this in ever-increasing numbers. Who's to say they were morally wrong? No one is equipped to judge another person's morals. And then other articles in higher education have pointed out this is an increasing uh, trend among college students and young adults and others who say that they cannot be judgmental because you are using your own morals and placing them on someone else and that's wrong. In fact, they would say that while they personally oppose human sacrifice, ethnic cleansing and slavery, no one has the right to criticize the moral views of another group. Isn't that fascinating and sad? That's why I've entitled this message Overdosing on Non-Judgmentalism. You see, the truth is, non-judgmentalism, that increasing part of a worldview that's a part of the 21st century, is in essence a facade for a satanically promoted worldview. And I mean that. I believe Satan wants to promote a worldview that has that kind of belief in it. That we cannot cast any kind of opinion or judgment upon someone else's moral views. Well, the truth is, rather than being non-judgmental, it is being judgmental. And here's what I mean by that. Because you see, it's judging the way of the Lord as being outmoded, outdated, and inappropriate. And so that kind of mindset is really judgmental on the Lord. Well, as we continue our study of the book of John, as we come into the 11th chapter as we did last week, we're going to see there's one area in which you must make a decision. You can't equivocate about who Jesus Christ was. He either was who he said he was, or he is a liar or a lunatic. And so the Bible today shows us that continuing struggle of many in the Jewish nation to understand and to accept who he was. So I would tell you that we must stop overdosing on non-judgmentalism. And in this area, we have got to make a judgment. We've got to make a decision. We've got to make a call. Who was Jesus Christ? Who was he? And more importantly, who is he to you? 
Well, let's look at our Bibles. And so I want to give you time, but go ahead and turn to John chapter 11. And I'm going to remind you that last week we gathered it electronically to study the first part, the longest part of the book of John chapter 11. We looked at verses 1 through 44 and we saw there that Mount Everest of Scripture passages which tell us of the raising of Jesus' friend Lazarus. One of the most powerful passages in all the Word of God. So today's passage is really a follow-up to that. It is really a follow-up of what happened after the raising of Lazarus. <clears throat> so look with me as we see the need today to either accept or reject. And we come to verse 45 there and it says, Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priest and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and said, What are we going to do since this man does many signs? If we let him continue in this way, everybody will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and remove both our place and our nation. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You're not considering that it's to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And look at verse 52. And not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. So that from that day on, they plotted to kill him. Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And he stayed there with the disciples. And then look at verse 55. It says, the Jewish Passover was near. And many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before the Passover. They were looking for Jesus. And asking one another as they stood in the temple complex, What do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? Verse 57 says, The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so that they could arrest him. <clears throat> Again, we're going to see in this text a serious situation. As many did accept him, but some rejected and it's going to be your decision today. Will you accept him or will you reject him? And how will you accept him or how will you reject him? First of all, let's look at the response of the crowd in verses 45 and the first part of verse 46. The response to the raising of Lazarus was interesting. It was twofold. Many did believe in him. In fact, the Bible says many of them believed in him because they saw what he did so there was a widespread evangelistic success as many people believed in him and you'd have to ask yourself today well who wouldn't believe in him 
after knowing that he raised Lazarus from the dead? This is what we would call incontrovertible evidence. I mean, this man had been dead four days, and yet Jesus, Jesus raises him up from the dead. Not just a miracle like that. But hearing words that Jesus spoke should have convicted the hearts and should convict our hearts. For even back, if I might remind you, back in some of the greatest verses that have ever been spoken in verse 25 and 26. And yes, I want you to memorize even those verses. Because there Jesus said words that pierce our heart. Jesus said words that were powerful. He said, I'm the resurrection and I'm the life. And the one who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Even those words alone should pierce our heart, making us realize Jesus was not just another prophet. He was the greatest of all persons who ever lived. And those words, I'm the resurrection and the life, speak to our soul and draw us unto the Lord. And then on top of that, as he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead after four days of death, how could someone not believe in him? And yet some did not. In fact, the latter part of that verse, well, the first part of verse 46 says, some went to the Pharisees and told on Jesus. Do you remember when you were a child how you liked to tell on your brother or your sister? We're here, we have people telling on Christ. So some accepted him, but some thought, well, we got to go tell the leaders what he's done. This is not good. And so others went to inform the religious leaders of the day. So we see this division. And I will tell you, even in the 21st century, that division continues to this day. There is no neutral ground. The crowd separated that day, and the crowd separates today. And I will say this later, perhaps in a different way. But I believe in the 21st century, we're seeing that division occur in a mighty way. Many news reports, statisticians, futurists have come out with all kinds of statistics in the last few years showing that there's this deep divide now among those who believe and those who don't. There used to be a large group in the middle of those who were kind of on the fence. But those are going down. That number is going down. And those who truly believe truly believe, and those who truly do not, truly do not. So there is a serious bifurcation, a separation of those who believe and who don't. That's the way it was then. That's happening now. So yes, we see the response, but next we see the reasoning behind that response. So look at again at the latter part of verse 46, all the way through verse 52, and we see what happened as they reason together. In fact, the, this occasion really precipitated a calling, kind of an emergency meeting of the Sanhedrin. And so the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin get together and they have a called meeting. And they express their disapproval. They express their frustration. Some of them said, well, you know, if this keeps going, he's going to develop such a following, everybody's going to believe in him little bit of hyperbole there. But they also pointed out that, that if he keeps getting so popular, it's going to cause a popular uprising and Rome is going to come in and shut us down. 
I've tried to teach you before that when Rome conquered a people, such as they conquered the people of Israel, they did allow a limited amount of self-government. And they allowed some people to remain in positions of power, such as the Jewish uh, leaders. So they're afraid they're going to lose their position. I don't think they really were concerned about the nation. They were concerned they were going to lose their status, their position. And so they are reasoning together that if he keeps getting too popular, there's going to be a popular uprising and Rome is going to come in with an iron fist. You see how wrong they were? Because our Lord Jesus was not interested in politics. He was not interested in an earthly throne. He wanted the hearts and souls of the people, not political control. So look with me at verse 49 and 50 and see how they reasoned all this out. The Bible says one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them. Let me stop there just a moment. Caiaphas is a name that perhaps you know well because when Jesus was later arrested, they took him to Caiaphas' house. He, by the way, was the son-in-law of Annas, another priest. The Bible says something interesting in two places in this passage. It says that Caiaphas was high priest that year. Well, what does that mean? Well, some of you like detail. Well, here's what that means. You see, in earlier Israelite history, the high priest was the high priest for life. That's the way it was. But before this occurred, it had become a political uh, position. And it really went to the highest bidder. And so they would pay the Romans to let them be the high priest. Very sad. Caiaphas was one of the most powerful because he even broke the annual rule and he had been high priest 18 years but he speaks up and he says to them you know nothing at all you're not considering that it would be to your advantage and he meant our advantage his own advantage that one man should die rather than the whole nation perish so let's kill him let's get rid of him because we know it'd be better for him to die than for us to lose our position and for our nation to suffer. And then in verses 51 and 52, look at this powerful passage. Because there he says, he didn't say this on his own, but being the chief priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And then he says in the next verse, not for the nation only, but for who else? He'll unite the scattered children of God. So in these verses, 51 and 52, here John, the great gospel writer, is taking Caiaphas' statement as a kind of a double entendre, an unconscious and perhaps involuntary prophecy that Jesus would become the sacrifice of the world. Putting it another way, his sneering remark expressed an unintended truth that our Lord Jesus would die for us all. Now, he didn't believe that personally, but he is sharing the truth of what was going to happen. And not only would Jesus die for the people of Israel, but he said in that last part of that last verse that we just read, that indeed he would bring together the scattered children of God 
bringing other people, Gentiles, into the kingdom of God. Isn't that exciting? Caiaphas didn't really know what he was saying, but he spoke the truth whether he knew it or not. Well, what a powerful prophecy from someone who didn't intend it so. And now last, let's see the results. Our Lord Jesus had enemies. He had serious enemies. Now, when one has an enemy, what does one do? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus taught us to love our enemies. But that's not the way the world saw it. In fact, Satan would encourage people who have enemies to destroy those enemies. And that's what they tried to do to our Lord Jesus. So look at verse 53 and following and you see this growing hostility of both the Sadducees and the Pharisaic party. The Sadducean priesthood was really the, the Jewish Supreme Court. And it said from that day on, they plotted to kill him. They plotted to kill him. So the settled decision was made. We're going to get rid of him. We're going to do away with him. They were resolute that he should die. And for that reason, the Bible tells us in verse 54 that he left Bethany. And he went just a little further to the north to that place called Ephraim, near the Judean desert. And there he stayed with his disciples. Well, the Bible also told us that the people were gathering in Jerusalem for the preparation for the Passover. And the Bible says they went to purify themselves. What does that mean? Well, the Passover was the greatest time in all the Jewish calendar. And so to make those sacrifices and to enter into worship, they believed that they needed to purify themselves. Now let me pause from this scripture just for a moment and say, when you come to church, when you gather in worship privately, electronically, or publicly, should you not do the same? Should we not have a time of spiritual cleansing to say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Lord, fill me with your spirit so that I might worship you today in the best way, in the right way. So this is a good example for all of us. Now, how did the Jews purify themselves? If one goes to Israel and you go to the Temple Mount, you can go into the ruins around the Temple Mount, particularly uh, on what's called a, a southern steps and there you can see all kinds of archaeological ruins that have been unearthed and in those ruins are multitudes of places little alcoves inside the stone facade that are called mikvahs ceremonial baths and so the Jewish people would come and they would uh, be immersed and cleanse themselves in these mikvahs. And by the way, for those of you who like a little trivia, uh, that is really the precursor to Christian baptism. So Christians are not the only people who have uh, taught and believed in baptism. And yes, for our friends everywhere, it was baptism by immersion. They would submerge themselves so they would go up into the temple totally clean. And so pilgrims from distant parts of the country had begun to assemble themselves. And in the next verse, it shows us that they began asking questions. 
They've been again wandering. They, they're looking for Christ. They had heard about Him. Everybody now is talking about Jesus because of what had happened in Bethany, just north of Jerusalem. And so they expected that Jesus would be there also. And so the guards are ready to arrest Him. His foes were powerless to take Him. They had issued a, an arrest warrant for Him. Verse 57 says the chief priests and the Pharisees had given those orders that if anybody knew where he would be, they could arrest him. And remember, friends, who it would be among that number that would report where he was. One of his own, Judas, would be the one that would tell them where he was, where he could be found, so that they might arrest him. Oh, my friends, I ask you today as we close this time of sermon presentation that you ask yourself, what would have been your response if you had been there? Would you be with that vast number who did believe? Or would you be among the skeptics, the detractors, those who sought to arrest him? I pray that we would answer in the former and not the latter. That we would be among those who would believe in him, seek him out. As I've already said, I believe the 21st century is calling out the serious and weeding out those who are half in and who are half out. I believe it's time to make decisions for Christ, to give our lives to Him in full commitment. I don't believe He wants anyone anymore who is half in and half out. He talks about that in other places in Scripture. He wants us all in and so I invite you today to give your life to Christ. And you may say, well, Pastor, I've already done that. And I invite you to give it all to Him. Hold nothing back from Him today. Give it all to Him. In a moment, we're going to sing a beautiful old song, I Surrender All. And it's a serious song. But it says that we're supposed to give it all to Him. I pray these people, at least that first part, that first crowd did indeed give it all to Him. And we need to do that even today. God bless you as you give your life to Christ today. It's a simple thing. This week I've been watching television some, as everybody has on the news. But I've seen several commercials from Franklin Graham. And I've seen him ask people to pray with him, what we call the sinner's prayer. To invite people to pray, to invite Christ into their life. And we invite you today to do the same. But remember... It's not about just repeating some magical phrase. That will do you no good at all. But a serious commitment of one's life to Christ is what is called for. And so would you do that today? Could you say, Lord Jesus, I give you my life. I submit to you today everything that I am. I hold nothing back. Lord, I give it all to you. I surrender all. I pray that you do that right where you are. In the quietness of this moment, just bow where you are, close your eyes and say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner and I need you. And I give it all to you. Please come into my life. Please change me. Please transform me. And may I follow you fully the rest of my life. And that's our prayer today, isn't it? Pray with me again. Lord Jesus, we come. That is our prayer. And I, Lord, pray for the many people who may have made that prayer theirs today, that it would be a serious prayer of commitment, 
There'd be no holding back of anything in any way. I pray, Lord God, <clears throat> for every man, woman, boy, and girl listening to the sound of my voice, that this would be a time of salvation, of commitment. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.